You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Black Tip, Matthew the Navigator, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we discussed the fall of Aruj Barbarossa and the rise of his brother Hizir Barbarossa. After his rise to Pasha, he became a world-famous figure. This presented a problem. Hizir started out as a privateer in the eyes of the Ottomans and a pirate in the eyes of the Europeans, but... What happens when a pirate is integrated into the navy, and not, you know, commandeered into fighting a battle against his wishes, but when the pirate becomes a governor and admiral? Hizir Barbarossa, on all of his vessels, flew the flag of the Ottoman Empire. He flew it high, and he flew it proud. Under that flag, he flew his own standard, white on green, with Arabic script at the top. That script read, quote, Victory from Allah and an imminent conquest, and give good tidings to the believers, O Muhammad. That's Quranic verse right there. You don't see many Golden Age pirate flags with scripture on them. No, they have skulls and skeletons and the heads of their enemies. On Barbarossa's flag, below the Arabic script, there are four crescents on each corner of the flag and the names of the first four caliphs. This is an ancient symbol within Islam. There is then in the center a two-bladed scimitar, another ancient Islamic symbol, and then a six-pointed star. Now, today we typically see that as the Star of David, a Jewish symbol. However, in the 1500s, the six-pointed star was not exclusively symbolic of Judaism. In this case, in the Ottoman Empire, it was primarily a Muslim symbol of the office of Pasha, called the Seal of Solomon. Now that doesn't sound much like a pirate flag, does it? Quranic verse, the names of the patriarchs, ancient religious symbols. Really, the only thing that looks much like a pirate flag at all is the scimitar. There are obvious reasons why it doesn't look like a pirate flag, but at this point I struggle with exactly how to move forward. The story of Hizir Barbarossa and Sinan Rais in the western Mediterranean, alongside the stories of Piri Rais in the east and Kurtublu in the Red Sea, well, they're all really starting to get big and exciting. But they aren't stories about pirates. Not anymore. They're just tales of admirals and governors doing their duty. Now, there was plenty of piracy going on in the Mediterranean, a major factor in Hizir's strategy as Pasha was virtually the same strategy used by Jamaican governors in the 1670s, hand out privateering commissions like candy to anyone that wants one. That will ensure thousands of sailors on hundreds of well-armed vessels patrolling your waters. They're basically a free amateur navy that will exclusively attack your enemies and cut you in on the take. They will... Well, beyond that, they'll also act as a sort of canary in the coal mine, should Spain or Italy start causing trouble. But instead of trying to detail all of that, all of these good lordly men doing their lordly duty, and really that's just the story of Ottoman expansion in North Africa, 
we're going to focus in on the major conflict, the world-defining conflict that would grip the world of the early 16th century. It was a clash between men and between empires. And that story begins in the city of Algiers. This is episode 78, Sovereign of the Mediterranean. When we talk about the greatest pirate havens that have ever existed, places like Tortuga, Port Royal, Nassau, Madagascar, we tend to leave out the city that may have housed more pirates than any other in world history. The city that was probably home to more pirate ships throughout its lifetime than any other. Objectively, Algiers may be the greatest pirate haven of all time. Not only was it the biggest city with the biggest port, it was the first real pirate haven of any size during the Age of Sail. But there are a few key differences between Algiers and those more traditionally accepted pirate haunts. First, there was probably a lot less drinking going on. The European world was drowned in rum and beer and wine, but the Muslim world was less accepting of alcohol than Europe. Now, there was some drinking going on in Algiers, of course. The pirates weren't, well, they weren't all Muslim, and those that were weren't necessarily the most devout Muslims. But the most significant difference between Port Royal and Algiers was the governor. When we talked about Henry Morgan way back when, we talked quite a bit about Governor Modiford, but he was a secondary character to the story, not the star of the show. In the case of Algiers, though, the Pasha, the governor, the admiral of the entire western Mediterranean, Hizir Barbarossa, well, he was the central figure in everything that was to come. Now, for the most part, after he gained office, he was too busy doing governor things to sail himself, but the sea and the privateers under him, well, they were key to his plans. So he chose the best captain among any of his men and made that captain the acting commander of all of the sea forces of Algeria, the second-in-command of his privateer Mediterranean fleet. He chose that young Sephardi Jewish exile from Spain who had grown up in Turkey, a man named Sinon. Now, Sinon would never be as famous as Barbarossa himself, not to history nor to the general population of Europe. However, to men that traversed the Mediterranean, European men that sailed, it was the flag of Sinon that struck fear into their hearts. See, when you're looking for piracy in the story of the Barbarossa brothers, it, well, it gets kind of hard to find. There's plenty of raiding and pillaging going on, but it had an ideological and political motivation. This was state-sanctioned raiding and pillaging, which isn't quite piracy. Orouge and Hizir had their eyes on political power and aiding the Ottoman Empire in its expansion. But the story of Sinan Rais, well, that story, it has all the hits. The persecution of a religious minority, economic and social disenfranchisement, crews of young men on the hunt for revenge and plunder. Plus, they were Jewish, not Muslims, so they could drink as much as they wanted. Sinan was one of those Barbary corsairs that grew up idolizing the elder Barbarossa brother, Orouge. He very likely was brought over from a hostile Spain aboard the ship of Baba Arouge himself, like so many other Jewish refugees from Spain that sailed into the Ottoman world. Sinan saw the possibility for revenge that the corsairs offered. There were thousands of Jews among the Barbary pirates, especially in these early days. Their primary bases, Algiers and Jerba, were home to a majority of the Jewish Berbers and tens of thousands of Sephardi Jews. Now, we know virtually nothing about the early career of Sinan. We don't know much about his family. Were they a coastal seafaring family? Did Sinan grow up on board a ship, or were they inland Spaniards? It's entirely possible that Sinan had never seen the sea before Arouge brought him to Ottoman Greece. Was he a private ship owner that turned privateer captain? Or was he a crew member on a privateer vessel that proved himself worthy through valorous deeds and hard work 
that the captain of his ship gave one of the prizes over to Sinan to captain. We don't know any of that. The first record of him that we have comes not even from the Mediterranean, but from India, of all places. The Portuguese governor of Portuguese India believed that Sinan had been sent by Suleiman the Magnificent to aid one of Portugal's enemies in the region. Now, he probably wasn't there in the Indian Ocean when that Portuguese governor wrote that letter, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. Kurtuglu Rais had launched his Red Sea fleet, and they were venturing deeper and deeper into Indian waters, and they were bothering Portuguese vessels. But what's striking to me in all of this, in this first historical mention from that Portuguese governor that we have of Sinan, the Portuguese governor calls him, quote, the great Jew. If Sinan were in fact in the Indian Ocean, raiding Portuguese shipping, he was already referred to as the great. He had a reputation that preceded him, even if we don't have a record of it. So we can assume several things from the context here. Sinan was probably already going by Sinan Rais, as he was a captain in the Ottoman Empire, even if he was little more than a glorified pirate. He probably knew Kurtuglu and Piri Rais, and he certainly knew Hizir Barbarossa. He was almost certainly at the conquest of Rhodes that took place in 1522, though whether he was there as a captain, we don't know. And he was probably in charge of many seaborne operations out of Algiers under the command of Hizir earlier in his career. After the death of Baba Orouge, Hizir Barbarossa continued the policy of ferrying over refugees. Not only did they continue it, they redoubled their efforts. It's entirely possible, even likely, that Sinan was behind that. And then there was the sacking of Spanish and Italian ships. Edward Kritzler writes in Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean, quote, No longer could Charles's ships, and he means Charles V, venture safely beyond home waters. Instead, the Mediterranean had become an alien sea dominated by Muslim corsairs and Jewish merchants, end quote. I think he's selling the Jewish population of the Mediterranean short here. There were plenty of Jewish merchants, yes, but there were plenty of Jewish corsairs as well. See, after Charles V took the city of Clemson back in 1516, and after he killed Oruge Barbarossa, it appears that he thought his job was done. He went home, but he didn't account for the younger Barbarossa, his ear. After the 1522 capture of Rhodes, which may have been Hizir's first major operation as an Ottoman official, the number of attacks on the sea perpetrated by Barbary corsairs, it exploded. It went from a few acceptable, fully insured losses to a complete halt in Mediterranean trade almost overnight. And it wasn't just shipping, they captured Spanish and Italian outposts on land all along the coast of North Africa. Cities, castles, the island fortifications, everything. Hizir was a swift and brutal tactician. His lieutenants, including Sinan Rais, were efficient in carrying out their duties and sometimes even more brutal than their commander. They were experts in not only carrying out his orders, but subduing any resistance in the area. Venetian and papal and Sicilian, French and Spanish authorities all agreed that something had to be done about these Muslim pirates, not only to free the sudden grip that Hazir Barbarossa and probably Sinan Rais had on the sea, but also as an answer to the defeat that they had suffered at Rhodes. Rhodes was the last European holdout in Greece, and these assembled Europeans decided that if the Ottoman barbarians were to take that holdout, they would take the most recent conquest of the Ottomans in North Africa. And that was the city of Algiers, currently the capital in which the Pasha of Algiers, his heir Barbarossa, resided. They did so in 1524. Unlike his brother, Oruge, who stayed to fight the Spanish, 
Hazir left Algiers with no fighting at all. He just up and left the city. He did have a rear guard secure the road, and there were a few skirmishes, but nothing serious. He made for Gigel, east of Algiers, another of the cities under his command, and collected his strength there. He called on privateers from Gerba and Greece and, well, anywhere that he had friends and subordinates, but not just privateers. He called on military recruits. He called on janissaries from the Ottoman Emperor himself. This assembled force of land-based armies and his privateers at sea embarked on a new campaign of conquest and raiding that, while it shocked even Charles V and beyond that, even Suleiman the Magnificent. See, the thing about this whole era in warfare, and especially in this Mediterranean theater of war, well, it's often been compared to chess. Or, rather, chess has roots in this style of warfare. You capture your opponent's piece and remove it from the board, but it occurs to me that that's not really accurate. The difference is, in chess, once you capture one of your opponent's pieces, it's removed from play. But in the real world, when you capture Algiers, it falls into your control. The soldiers fight for you. In that metaphorical game of chess, it would make more sense to me if when you captured your opponent's piece, it became yours. Now, there would have to be, if this hypothetical game of chess did exist, some sort of penalty for using one of these captured pieces. A conquered army never fights as well as a willing volunteer army, and the Spanish found that to be the case in Algiers. However, that's what was happening in the Mediterranean throughout the entire first quarter of the 16th century. Spain captured Algiers, the Barbary Corsairs captured Pignon de Velez de Logomera, a Spanish holdout. The Corsairs would raid Italy, and the Spanish would raid Barbary villages. It was stroke and counterstroke. It was fencing on a Mediterranean-wide level. But there is something worth noting here. That Pignon de Velez de la Gomera, the Pignon part of that name. A Pignon was a Spanish word for fortress, but more specifically it was a seaside hill fort built on a rocky outcrop and even more specifically only in North Africa, at least at first. Sometimes you would find these pignons not on rocky outcrops but on islands, but usually it was on a hillside overlooking a bay. But elsewhere they weren't called pignons. We see the same design, these hill forts, all over the New World. There were three of them guarding Maracaibo. There were two at Gibraltar and Nicaragua, and Fort Charles in Port Royal was built on the ruins of a Spanish pignon. Now these were what the Corsairs and the Spanish traded over and over and over and over and over again. When Algiers and Tunis and all the other ports of note traded hands between the two opposing sides, it was the Pignon around which all of the fighting focused. I imagine that there were mornings in some of these cities when the residents of Algiers would look up and be a bit surprised to see a Spanish flag flying over the fortress. You know, oh, that's what all the bustle was about last night. Well, Thank God I've always been a good Catholic at heart. And then a few months and a few days of cannon fire later, oh, praise Allah, the Ottoman flag is back. They traded lords quickly in those days and learned to adapt if they wanted to survive. But all of that changed in January of 1529. Suleiman the Magnificent declared war on the Holy Roman Empire. Now, you didn't really declare war on the empire, but he declared war on the Christian Hungarian states, which were ruled at the very top by Charles V and below him more directly by Charles's brother. Now, you could declare war on individual states within the empire, technically, without drawing the ire of the entire imperial force, but sometimes, especially if you were an Ottoman sultan, the entire empire would reply. In this case, the king of Spain, Charles I, was the same man as the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. This was a declaration of war not just against Hungary, 
but a declaration of war between Charles V and Suleiman the Magnificent. And it was this declaration that sets the table for the giant conflict to come. We've introduced most of the players within that conflict so far. The Emperor and the Sultan at the top. Barbarossa, Sinan Rais, Kurtuglu Rais. But there's one other major player that we have yet to mention. He's on the Christian side of things, which may be why. His name was Andrea Doria, and if you choose to see him as the antagonist to Hazir Barbarossa, you wouldn't be too far off. If Suleiman and Charles were playing this giant game of chess in the western Mediterranean, then Hazir and Andrea Doria were... Maybe they were the queens on the board, important pieces, maybe the most important pieces. Andrea Dorio was Genoese, of minor noble birth, but he was orphaned at a young age. Instead of inheriting his father's lands, he left home and took to soldiering. In the Italy of the late 1400s, that meant mercenary work. Northern Italy, including Genoa, were... Well, they usually didn't have standing armies. They had these mercenary groups that the local lords could hire, and they were quite talented mercenary organizations. Andrea Doria joined one of these. Eventually, he rose to lead his band of mercenaries, or what they called conditeros. However, land-based mercenary work wasn't the best way to get paid. For that, you needed sea-based work, so... He took some of his earnings, bought a ship, and went to water. He fought for many different principalities and their lords against the French and against Venice, but eventually he returned home to Genoa, and in their service, he fought against the Barbary Corsairs. In 1518, so only a few years after the capture of those two papal galleys, Kurtuglu Rais was operating of the Tunisian city of Bizerte. He and his top lieutenant, a man named Kaid Ali, established a base of operations on Elba, just off the coast of mainland Italy. Kurtuglu was called to Istanbul to work on the Red Sea fleet, so he left his lieutenant, Kaid Ali, in charge. In April of 1519, just a few months after he was called away to the Red Sea, Andrea Doria set out under the orders of the Genoese to deal with the Corsair presence there on Elba. He had four of his own mercenary galleys, with two additional Genoese galleys to supplement that force. Now his ship, his personal ship, served as the flagship in the fleet, and then two of his nephews, Filippino Doria and Lazzarino Doria, commanded two other of the ships that belonged to Andrea Doria. On 25 April, just south of Elba, in the Tuscan archipelago, the two Genoese galleys, the flagship Capitana and the Petrona, encountered the Barbary fleet. They called them the Byzantine fleet due to their base on Bizerte. The Barbary fleet was much larger than the Corsican fleet, maybe eight or ten galleos strong, and Doria was sailing against the wind to reach them. The pirates had a clear advantage here, and everyone knew it. So Doria did the smart thing. He turned around and ran for it. Naturally, the corsairs saw the two galleys running and chased after them. The chase lasted for about four hours until Doria reached the western cape of Elba. There, he turned his vessels back around to face the incoming corsairs. See, here's the thing. That western cape marks a point where the wind patterns in the Mediterranean shift. Andrea Doria had gone from a position where he was rowing against the wind to a place where the corsairs would be rowing against the wind. When they were in range, Doria opened fire with his wonderful Genoese guns and sank one of the incoming galleots. But the rest of the corsair fleet managed to get in close and to grapple the two Genoese galleys. The pirates boarded La Capitana and La Patrona, and it turned to fighting on deck. Curved Barbary scimitars flashed out to strike down the Italians, but these weren't just merchants on board. The men on the two Genoese galleys were veteran mercenary warriors on land and sea. Their presence had decided more than a few battles back in France and Italy during the Italian wars. 
and they carried a specialized sword, the Genoan boarding sword. It was a wide, heavy, straight-bladed, one-handed sword, as opposed to the more typical Italian sword, the rapier. It was designed for naval combat in that dashing Italian fencing style. It was strong, but it was quick. It was heavy, and the short sword made it perfect for fighting on deck. It also had a full handguard and a small buckler, so the mercenary Italians were able to beat back wave after wave of Barbary pirates. Imagine the German barbarians of the first century smashing against the legions of Rome and breaking like a wave. That was happening on board each of these Genoese galleys. Then Filipino and Lazzarino Doria arrived with the other four galleys, Andrea Doria's personal fleet, and they surrounded the Corsair vessels. They bombarded the galleos while the Corsairs themselves were occupied on board La Capitana and La Patrona. The fighting continued for about half an hour, but it hadn't become a fight for the Corsairs to win, it had become a fight for the Corsairs to, well, attempt to disengage, and they failed to do so. In the end, the Barbary Admiral, Kaid Ali, was captured. Now, the Italians had their losses as well. Lazzarino was killed, and Filipino Doria was gravely wounded, but Andrea Doria had defeated this Barbary fleet that was menacing his shores. He had freed Elba and the coast of Italy from the pirate menace. This made him, as a mercenary commander, a hot property. His mercenary company was sought after the length of Europe. Now, while all this fighting had been going on, his home, Genoa, had been captured by the Holy Roman Empire. So he signed a contract with France to fight the imperial forces there in Genoa. He was mostly successful through these campaigns. They were both land and sea-based, but when the empire finally pulled back, due largely to Doria's leadership, well, he was the only strong military force left in Genoa. He cited back pay to the French king, and he ordered the French that were still there out of his lands. Now, the Genoese offered him a crown, but he declined it. He instead insisted that they reestablish the Republic of Genoa, and he himself was given every honor and privilege that a king might ask, but he didn't have the title. Instead, he continued to fight the Corsairs out in the sea, and he was behind the capture of Tunis along with many other strategic victories. Then, Andrea Doria received a message from the Pope. Remember way back when we were talking about the War of the Reunions that France fought against the Holy Roman Empire in the 1680s, about 150 years after these events? Well, when the King of France, Louis XIV, decided to fight the War of the Reunions, he did it at a strategic moment, a moment when Austria was being attacked by the Ottomans. Now, he got a lot of flack over that, but it wasn't without precedent. Here in the early 1500s, when Andrea Doria was fighting his wars, France was, as usual, fighting to check the growing power of the Habsburg House. The King of France was Francis I at the time, and he was engaged in a war with Charles V, and he was losing. Actually, Francis I was in prison in Madrid when his mother sent a letter to Suleiman the Magnificent in the king's name, and offered an alliance between France and the Ottoman Empire. Suleiman wrote a reply on 6 February 1526. In part, that reply read, quote, I, who am the Sultan of Sultans, the Sovereign of Sovereigns, the dispenser of crown to the monarchs on the face of the earth, the shadow of the God on earth, the Sultan and Sovereign Lord of the Mediterranean Sea and of the Black Sea, of Rumelia and of Anatolia, of Caramania, of the land of the Romans, of Kurdistan, of Azerbaijan, of Persia, of Damascus, of Aleppo, of Cairo, of Mecca, of Medina, of Jerusalem, of all Arabia, of Yemen, and of many other lands which my noble forefathers and my glorious ancestors, may God light up their tombs, conquered by the force of their arms, and which my august majesty has made subject to my flamboyant sword and my victorious blade, I, Sultan Suleiman Khan, son of Sultan Selim Khan, son of Sultan Bayezid Khan, to thee, who art Francesco, king of the province of France. 
end quote. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. That's quite a list of titles. I actually cut out some of them because I couldn't really pronounce them, but it was originally longer than that. King of the Romans, named himself a Khan, lord of like a dozen different cities, distributor of crowns, and, well, he was all of that. Now, he wasn't actually sovereign of the Mediterranean. He could claim the title, but it was currently being contested by Italy and Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. But compare that giant list of titles to what he grants King Francis I, king of the province of France. And when he says province there, he means a province of the Ottoman Empire. Now on the face of it, the Ottoman Sultan considered himself the emperor of Rome, and that it was his divine right that he be the emperor of everything that Rome had once commanded. That means not just France or Gaul, that means Britannia. That means Hispania. That means Italy. He considered all of that his birthright, and owed to him by the people who lived there. However, Suleiman was making it clear who he thought that the senior partner in the alliance between the Ottomans and France was to be. Suleiman continues, quote, You have informed me that the enemy has overrun your country, and that you are at present in prison and a captive, and you have asked aid and succors for your deliverance. All this you are saying, having been set forth at the foot of my throne, which controls the world. Your situation has gained my imperial understanding in every detail, and I have considered all of it. There is nothing astonishing in emperors being defeated and made captive, Take courage, then, and be not dismayed. Our glorious predecessors, may God light up their tombs, have never ceased to make war to repel the foe and conquer his lands. We ourselves have followed in their footsteps and have at all times conquered provinces and citadels of great strength and difficult of approach. Night and day our horse is saddled and our saber is girt. May the God on high promote righteousness. May whatsoever he will be accomplished." For the rest, question your ambassador and be informed. Know that it will be as said. End quote. Man, this guy is amazing. I mean, if we can look past the imperialism and the brutality and all of the hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people that died due to the orders that he set down, I mean, that letter is just so cool. It's like reading something Teddy Roosevelt wrote, or Alexander the Great, or Julius Caesar, this guy, maybe he did deserve to control the entirety of Rome. This alliance was the basis of an alliance that would continue on intermittently through the entire reign of the Bourbon dynasty, through Louis Fourteenth and his successors, until, in the 1800s, Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Egypt. 
Now, if I may digress for a second, there is an argument to be made that had Napoleon not broken the treaty there between France and the Ottoman Empire, World War I would have seen the Triple Entente turn into the Quadruple Entente. England, France, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire. The war, had that been the case, might have ended much more quickly. But with France and the Ottoman Empire allied to one another, the rest of Christendom needed to put their petty wars aside and concentrate on Suleiman the Magnificent. So Pope Paul III began speaking to all of the leaders of continental Europe, everyone except Francis. Now, right about 1530, Spain was doing well in their campaign in North Africa. Andrea Doria was busy capturing towns and port cities on the coast. There were two primary reasons for this. First, the Knights Hospitalier had finally found a place to settle down, after the sack of Rhodes. They landed on the island of Malta, just off the coast of Spain. King Charles had leased them the island for the price of one Maltese falcon a year. They had built their strength back up after their defeat, and they had become, this time, the Knights of Malta. Second, Hizir and Sinan and Kartuglu and all the rest of the Algerian Barbary Corsairs had pulled back from their bases on the Barbary coast. Suleiman had ordered them to stop focusing their efforts in North Africa and begin focusing their efforts on the Ionian Sea in western Greece. See, the emperor wanted to complete the conquest of Greece once and for all. It was time, in his estimation, to move on to Italy. He was, after all, the king of all the Romans, and things were going well for these privateers in Greece. Hizir may have lost Algiers for the time being, but he had a new base of operations that technically, at least had, belonged to the Republic of Venice. And it was actually Venice that approached Pope Paul III about this little problem. The Pope signed an alliance between the Papal States, his personal holdings, and the Republic of Venice. Now, this was a fairly big deal. They had fought many wars against each other over territory. But then the Pope approached Andrea Doria, the mercenary king that wasn't a king of the Genoese Republic. He urged Doria to join the alliance and to lead their operations at sea, but Andrea Doria, by this point, wasn't free to join just any alliance he wished. See, he had, after fighting the Holy Roman Empire, actually allied himself with Charles V against France. Doria was already serving as the Supreme Admiral of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, there were political and military reasons that the German imperial states could and would not join in an alliance with the Pope. Not least among them was that little problem of the Protestant Reformation sending some of those German states into open rebellion against the church and the entire structure of the empire being in jeopardy. So the Holy Roman Empire, at least the German states, Austria, Hungary, they were out of this fight. And the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, couldn't exactly let his admiral join up with the Pope. But here's the thing. The Holy Roman Emperor could release that admiral from service. And the king of Spain, who, remember, was the same guy, he could accept the allegiance of that former imperial admiral. He could accept his allegiance and then order him to join in that holy league. And that's what happened. It had a lot to do with what we might today call optics. And also, Suleiman was busy approaching a lot of Protestant princes, and Charles was busy trying to keep their allegiance. He had to make it very clear that the Holy Roman Empire in Germany would not ally themselves with the Catholic Pope, at least not at that moment. And then, two years later, in 1532, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, Suleiman the Magnificent, visited one of those German states himself. He went to Austria to meet with Charles V's brother and some of the other more prominent German princes in the region. This was a state visit of one of the most powerful and august monarchs in the entire world, in the lands of another emperor of comparable strength. 
There was pomp and grandeur and political maneuvering all over the place. I imagine that the food tasters all over Austria earned their money while this state visit was ongoing. But beyond the witty quips and political intrigues that were going on in Austria, perhaps the biggest move came during this state visit when elsewhere in Europe, Andrea Doria sacked and occupied three cities in Ottoman-held southern Greece. I would like to be a fly on the wall during those conversations at the Habsburg court in Austria between the Austrians and the Germans and Suleiman the Magnificent. When he finally returned to Istanbul, Suleiman summoned Hizir Barbarossa, his top admiral. He gave Hizir new titles and new honors and new responsibilities, and then a new name. He was made the Grand Admiral of the entire Ottoman fleet, that includes not only the Western Mediterranean, but the Eastern Mediterranean, and the Red Sea, and the Indian Ocean, and the Black Sea. He named him the Kapudan Pasha, Baylor Bay of all North Africa, not just Algeria any longer, but everything to the west of Egypt. And he named him Hyreddin. Literally, that translates to best of the religion. Kapudan, Pasha, Hizir, Hyreddin, Barbarus, Baylor Bay of the Maghreb, Sultan of Algeria, Lord of Tunis, of Algiers, of Jerba, the list goes on. It wouldn't be quite as long as Suleiman the Magnificent himself, but it might be the second longest list of titles in the Ottoman Empire. Not bad for a potter's son turned privateer. Hizir undertook two major operations. First, he sent an embassy to France. The ambassadors from the Ottoman Empire, from Hizir, arrived in Marseille in July 1533. They were greeted by a French prince, Henri d'Orléans, and his bride-to-be, an Italian woman named Catherine de Médicis. When the ambassadors arrived, King Francis was riding south to meet with them. But when he arrived, he was granted gifts from the ambassadors, there were gold and spices and exotic foods, but the most extravagant of these gifts was, first, a living African lion, and second, 100 French Catholic prisoners. Most of them were naval officers of some rank that had been enslaved by the corsairs in the previous years. There were ambassadors from the English court of Henry VIII there in Marseille to bear witness, and... Perhaps during this meeting there were a few clandestine discussions between Henry VIII and the Ottoman ambassadors, but they broke the prisoners' chains, the French prisoners' chains, in a great show of friendship and ceremony on the 22nd of July. Trade deals were hashed out between ambassadors, and there was even a loose military alliance finally agreed to, Diplomats were exchanged, embassies were established in all the major cities, and even plans for further meetings. This alliance between Hizir, the king of Algeria, and the French king meant that there would be a French presence in Algeria for centuries, and in about 200 years that would ease the French invasion of Algeria. However, while all of this diplomacy was going on, there were military moves taking place in two different regions. While Hizir's agents were busy at a diplomatic meeting, Hizir himself recaptured the Greek islands that had been captured by Andrea Doria during the meeting of Suleiman the Magnificent and the German princes. And then Hizir went on the offensive in Italy. He captured outposts and towns all along the coast of Italy. He carried off hundreds of slaves. The records differ here, so it's hard to say exactly how many people were enslaved. The numbers vary from conservative estimates, like merely the prisoners of war captured from castles and garrisons, to numbers that are so ridiculous that all of western Italy would have been depopulated by these raids. But there is a story told during his raids in western Italy, a romantic ballad in the tradition of medieval poets. See, at this time, in the 1530s, all of the Renaissance poets of Italy were enamored with one woman. Philip Gose writes in The History of Piracy, quote, 
stories that Barbarossa heard on his progress of the lovely Julia Gonzaga, Duchess of Trejato, and Countess of Frondi, tempted him to an exploit of a somewhat different character. The young widow was the most famous beauty in Italy. No fewer than 208 Italian poets had written verses in her honor, and the device emblazoned upon her shield was the flower of love. End quote. Now, Julia Gonzaga was a real noblewoman. She was married to the Duke of Trajeto and the Count of Frondi at age 14. Her husband died when she was merely 17 years old. At 17, she inherited all of his lands and titles and became overnight Italy's most eligible bachelorette. Whatever nobleman managed to capture her heart and win her hand in marriage would gain some of the most powerful lands in Europe. When Barbarossa attacked Frondi on 8 August 1534, Julia Gonzaga was there. At the time, she was still only 22 years old. There are some indications that some within the court of Suleiman the Magnificent wanted to secure Julia Gonzaga, to bring her to Istanbul and to marry her to the Sultan. Had she been married to the Sultan, suddenly Suleiman would have gained some of those most powerful lands in Europe, without any bloodshed at all. And it would be a claim that even the Pope himself could not dispute. It's possible that his ear Barbarossa, the most brutal of the pashas and among the most powerful, was sent here to Italy on this errand in particular. Ghost continues in his work, quote, The lady was at Fondi. Thither the pirate traveled swiftly and by night. But the fame of his presence preceded him, and the lady had just time to leap from her bed and gallop off on horseback, dressed in the flimsiest of night garments, and accompanied by one male attendant. She managed to escape, and afterwards condemned the attendant to death, because she alleged he had been unduly familiar during that desperate nocturnal ride. Kair ed-Din, annoyed at the escape of his sultan's fair prize, gave over the town of Fondi to a terrible four hours' punishment at the hands of his men. End quote. That's quite an exciting story. Exactly the sort of story that a young, beautiful, highly marriageable woman might want to spread to increase her fame and make herself an even greater prize. It's also the sort of story that Renaissance poets would love to tell. They would eat it up. A beautiful young widow, a desperate escape from dangerous pirates, a brave and valiant knight, and only the two of them camped within a deep, dark thicket. Her fear and excitement overcame her will, and she allowed the brave knight to ravish her. And in guilt for this sin, she had him executed. Some of it is true, but much of it may be myth. If you were that young noblewoman and you wanted to increase your prestige to attract a higher class of noble, you could whisper that to a couple of your bedmaids, who could whisper that to a couple of the young knights they slept with, and soon enough that story would be all over Italy, and every poet in Renaissance Italy would be dying to write that poem. Then again, Barbarossa did attack her castle, and he did sack it, and he did allow his men to ravage the town. And she was there. She did escape. So perhaps every element of that romantic ballad is true. And that makes me think, Julia Gonzaga's story sounds romanticized and mythical to me. But while I've been talking about wars and sieges and capturing cities, I haven't really spent much time looking at the real people on the ground. There's not much good to talk about there. 16th century warfare was almost inconceivably brutal. It was bad enough when two Catholic armies met and clashed. The spoils of war in those occasions would often include food and money and the unwanted attention of the soldiers on many of the local women. But that's between armies that share a faith. When we see Protestant armies clash with Catholic armies later on during the Thirty Years' War, we get all the horrors of traditional warfare and the added bonus of accusations of witchcraft. 
Women faced not only sexual and physical violence, but the very real possibility of being burned at the stake. And then think about the brutality that Morgan or Francois Lolonnet visited upon Spanish towns in the New World. And even in those cases, we're looking at different sects of the same religion. There may have been Protestants and Catholics, but everybody involved was white and everybody worshipped Jesus, even if they did so differently. But when Barbarossa attacked Italian towns, or when Andrea Doria attacked Berber cities, there were racial and religious differences that broadened the gap between them. The soldiers and the commanders on both sides saw the enemy as less human, maybe less than human. They were infidels that spat in the face of God, and therefore they were suitable candidates for the worst sort of brutality. And there was a pressure building up because of that brutality. Both sides were growing angrier and angrier. Eventually, that pressure would have to be released. Next time, we're going to look at the moment when that pressure boiled over. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Not only those of you who have become patrons on Patreon. However, there have been a surprising number of you these last few days, so thank you to everybody who has signed up. But also thank you to everybody who has given us a shout-out, online or in real life. Everybody who has left us a review, wherever it is you listen to the show. Without all of your help, I wouldn't be able to do this. There are two special mentions I'd like to make note of this week. First of all, one of our longtime Commodores, Conif Allende. He and I have been planning to sit down and talk about his book, Be More Pirate, for some time now. However, my life has been a hectic mess of late, but we're going to get down to that conversation very shortly. Keep your eyes open for his book, Be More Pirate. The second special mention I would like to make note of this week, we have a new Commodore among our ranks. However, I don't like to mention people by name until they have given me a name they choose to use. Some people prefer not to have their real names used, so I won't name them until we choose a cool pirate name, but a special thanks to you as well. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you have yet to check them out yet, I absolutely suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. When you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight